thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Friends, good morning. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here. If you're new with us, we're, we're glad that you have joined with us to, to join with the church who across the world today, as Andrew reminded us, have been uh, speaking to the Lord, hearing from him in prayer, hearing from him in his words, saying the Lord's prayer together, confessing their faith in the creed and opening up his, his word. That's what we come to do just, just now. We're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in our our fourth week, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 4, where in our passage today, the, the preacher, the, the one who speaks to us, whose voice we hear in this book, addresses the topic of work, of, of what we would think of as our, our nine till five. It's a topic that he addresses a lot throughout this book, and so it would be wrong for us to neglect it, but it would also be wrong to neglect it, because um, for all of us, work takes up such a big percentage of our lives. Whether you're a student, you have, you have work to do. Maybe you're working in a, a career, you, you go there day by day. Maybe you're, you're staying at home with kids or, or, or a caretaker at home, you've got work to do there. Maybe you're retired, remember Christians, um, retired, what does that mean? We don't really believe in that. That means you've stopped one type of work so you can focus now on a different type of work. The Lord still has good things for your hands to do. You are not done yet, there is kingdom work to do. So whatever type of work you do, um, it takes up about a third of your life. Now, when you think that about one third of your life is, is spent asleep in bed, work therefore takes up about 50% of your waking hours. And if we want to, we want to respond to God's love, if we want to follow Jesus, we're going to have to figure out how to do that at work. How to do that with 50% of our waking hours. So let's give our attention, let's give our affection to, to one section of God's word that addresses this topic. Ecclesiastes 4, I'm going to read from verse 4 through to the end of verse 8. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, would you be pleased in your kindness to draw near to us once again, and through your, your voice of love, help us understand a little more 
about how we can, we can follow you as we do the work of our lives. We pray that you would come be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Arthur Brooks, do you know that name? He is a devout Catholic. He is a pretty prolific author. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. And he says that meaningful work is one of the pillars for building a happier life. If you want to be happy, you've got to find meaningful work. He cites hundreds of studies that have shown that, quote, job satisfaction and life satisfaction are positively related. And note, not just positively related, but causal. Liking your job causes you to be happier all around. Liking your job causes you to be happier all around. Now, I won't do this, but if I ask for a show of hands for how many people who like their jobs, I wonder how many hands would go up. I won't do that in case your boss also comes to Cedar Springs. Um, but how many of us would say we are, we are happy in, in our jobs? Well, intriguingly, Arthur Brooks goes on to argue that this kind of satisfaction, this kind of happiness in work, actually has very little to do with the work that you do and more to do with how you do it. Happiness at work doesn't really depend on your job, but how you are in your job. And so he says, you can love or hate being a lawyer, an electrician, a homemaker, or a full-time volunteer. Researchers who have looked to find a connection between jobs and, and happiness levels, what jobs make you happy, what jobs make you sad, have largely struck out because apparently what matters, happiness depends most on you, not on your specific job. So whatever you do today, whether it's paid, whether it's, it's unpaid, our passage is going to invite us into a healthier, into a happier relationship with work. There's so much we could say about this topic. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear I'm going to resist the urge to preach a three-hour sermon and try and say too much. Instead, I want to focus on one specific area uh, when it comes to our working lives. It's the specific area our, our text addresses, and, it, and it's this. How much time should we give to our work? If you want to have a healthier, happier relationship at, at work, how much time should you give to it. Well, I want to start our reflections, as you see there on the slide, with Goldilocks. You remember how she breaks and enters into the home of the, the three bears, and once there, she finds a bowl of porridge. One bowl, of course, is too hot, the other is too cold, the third one is just right. After that, she goes and sits in some chairs, and one is too soft, one is too hard, the third is just right. Then she goes for a nap, one bed too soft, another too hard, the third just right. Well, putting aside her uh, breaking and entering ways, uh, the preacher in our passage actually says a similar thing about work. He says, don't underwork, don't overwork, instead get the balance just right. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Not underworking, not overworking, trying to get the balance just right. Let's see how he says this in the text. Look down with me at verse 5, where we get this first idea that we're not to underwork. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Isn't the Bible graphic? The fool, the lazy person, 
folds their hands in complacency and it leads them to destruction. They bring home no bacon, so all they have to eat is themselves. The preacher's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't underwork. Yet on the other hand, the other extreme, don't overwork. Look at verse six. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You get so busy with work that both your hands are full of it. No space, no margin, just stress. Working, 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 busy, 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 and, and it's endless. It's a striving after the wind. Instead, the preacher says, instead of underwork, instead of overwork, look, look, look at the other part of verse 6. Try to get it just right. Better is a handful of quietness. Isn't this great how the preacher describes this? Um, again, the Bible is so, um, it's so descriptive. Don't fold your hands. That's lazy. Don't fill both hands. That's workaholism. Instead, fill, your, fill, fill one hand with work and leave the other hand for quietness and the rest of life. Seek to get the balance just right. Now, I think this Goldilocks principle is probably helpful for all of us. Perhaps helpful to, to those of us who might have a tendency to, to underestimate the importance of work and therefore to, to underwork. So many people see work as a kind of um, like a necessary evil, view work as a, a means to an end, see it as something that you have to endure until you get home at night or something that you have to endure until the week ends and you can live for, for the weekend. And, and when we find ourselves in that position, we need to be reminded that, you know, according to the Bible, work is a good thing. Work is a, is a gift from God. In fact, according to Genesis 1.1, God himself works. Remember that the opening verse of the Bible is a working verse. In the beginning, God created. He is the first artist. He is the first engineer. All of us are here because he is the great entrepreneur. And then what did this working God do? He gave us work to do. Genesis 2.15. It's the perfection of Eden. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. And God places Adam in that garden to do what? To quote, Work it and keep it. Before sin enters the world, work was part of God's good design for us. And so we're not to be a people who hold our hands. We're not to be a people who, who are lazy or, or complacent. We're to be a people who, who work to see how we can serve others. And that's what we do when we're in the office, when we're on the job site, when we're at home or in the classroom, wherever we find ourselves, we are living out what it means to be made in the image of God, trying to make a difference, a small difference for him in his world. So as the Goldilocks principle is helpful for us, maybe if we're tempted to underwork, isn't it also helpful for us too, though, if we're tempted to overwork? If we're tempted to, to overestimate the importance of of work. Um, you know, so many of us expect work, um, far from thinking it's not that important, we think it's almost too important. And we expect work to give us a sense of value and worth. We expect our, our accomplishments or our success uh, to give us a, an identity, to give us a sense of self. And we need to be reminded that while God, like work is a good gift of God, work itself makes a terrible God. It makes a terrible idol. You know, 
There is no accomplishment, no success that can ever take away your fear of failure. There is no accomplishment, no success that will ever suddenly make you feel like you are enough. So don't fill both hands with it as if um, there's nothing more to life. Don't work every hour God sends as if it's somehow the key to, to a happy life. Instead, don't underestimate it. Don't overestimate it. Instead, seek moderation. Fill one hand with a good gift of work, leaving the other hand free for quietness in the rest of life. Don't underwork. Don't overwork. Get the balance just right. It's a simple teaching, but here's the million-dollar question. What does that look like? What does that look like for us in, in our lives? How do we get this balance just right? Of course, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. The Bible doesn't give us a, a one-size-fits-all answer. I'm not going to give you a one-size-fits-all answer um, because so much depends. So much depends on our own circumstances. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do hourly work to make ends meet, you might have to work every, every hour you can get. If you're here this morning and you're in the middle of like professional training or you're early in career, you, you might have to work a lot. If you're here this morning and you have a difficult boss, always makes me nervous to say that when I see so many of my staff in the congregation. Um, if you're here this morning and you have a difficult boss or you are in an organization that celebrates overwork, it, it might be hard for you not to work more than, more than you'd like. Perhaps though you're later in your career, you know there's this interesting pattern. Sometimes later in your career, you work fewer hours, but in those hours you carry more weight. So there's, there's no one size fits all answer to this question. And, and Ecclesiastes doesn't, doesn't give us a prescriptive answer. It doesn't say do this, not that, work this many hours and that's enough. <laughs> the 40 hour work week wasn't even invented when Ecclesiastes was written. So instead, what Ecclesiastes does is give us this thing called wisdom. Wisdom. It's truth that we need to apply to our own circumstances, to our own lives. It's not an, an answer as much as it's as principles that we need to apply to ourselves. And our passage gives us wisdom, wisdom for getting the balance just right in the form of, of two questions. Let's ask ourselves these two questions as we seek to have a healthy happy relationship with work. Question number one is this. When I think about my working life, when I think about how much I work, ask myself, you ask yourself, who am I comparing myself to? Who am I comparing myself to? The author is going to show us that our relationship with work tends to get out of whack when we compare ourselves to others. Look down and see this in verse four. Then I saw that all toil... And all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is vanity and a striving after wind. See what he's saying? He's saying your relationship with work will become dysfunctional if, if you spend too much time comparing yourself to others. If you find yourself caught up in envy. On one hand, you could see how that might lead you to underwork. Why? Because you're too busy envying and comparing yourself to everybody's Instagram life and think that your life should also be spent having fun and taking trips as if that's all there, there is to this life. And so what you're going to do is you're going to skate by at work doing the bare minimum in order so that you can get on with, quote, like 
the rest of life are, are real life. Comparing yourself to others, leading yourself to underwork. On the other hand, though, we can see how, how envy or comparison would lead, lead us to overwork. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this one because, friends, let's um, stand on your own toes. This is probably the real challenge in our, in our community. Um, a culture of being busy, busy, busy. Where we work to get more and more and more. So we work to get that new car. And we work to get the new home in which to drive that new car to. And then we work to send our kids to that new school so that we can drive our new car from our new home to that new school. And then we work so that we can take these kids on the same types of vacation their, their classmates are going to. So that when we leave this new home, we can go, we can go somewhere, somewhere else better, somewhere else that is new. There's a challenge um, that the Moorish nature of West Knoxville culture, all of us are aerial. You know aerial? Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you say my collection's complete? And then remember what, what she sings? I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got woozits and what's-its galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. The Moorish nature of, of West Knoxville culture. Well, and if a Disney princess doesn't resonate with you, um, how about this clip? from Jim Carrey. Let's play this clip. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe-winning <laughs> actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. <laughs> but what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. <laughs> I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. <laughs> I dream of being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, because then it would finally be true. I'd be enough, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately will not fulfill me. Friends, <laughs> who are you comparing yourself to? Are you like Jim Carrey? Comparing yourself to some future version of yourself. When I am this car-owning James Forsyth, I will finally be enough. 
when I am this home owning James Forsyth, it'll finally be true. When I go on this trip or that vacation, then I'll be able to stop this terrible search. You comparing yourself to some future version of yourself? Maybe you're comparing yourself to a neighbor who just has more stuff. Maybe you compare your family to other families and the opportunities that they give their kids. Ask yourself this question, who am I comparing myself to? And then gently, with compassion, with grace, at yourself, just laugh. Laugh and stop this terrible search for what you know ultimately will not fulfill you. Why would you spend your whole life working to get things that you know won't make you happy even if you get them? It's heaven. It's not how we want, how we want to be. And friends, let's teach our kids about these things. We live in a community um, that's so lavishly abundant that our kids don't realize that they're rich. That historically and globally, they're the richest kids in history. And, and, so, and so, yeah, l- listen to their hearts when they speak of envy. Don't shame them for it. That's natural. That's human. We do it ourselves. But then gently encourage them. Gently teach them, dear ones, we have enough. <laughs> Our family, we're blessed by God. We have more than we need. Of course, I want to recognize that there is poverty in our community and there's poverty in our pews as well. And as a church, we have a huge heart for that and we want to be doing something about that. That's why we spend so much of our time and and energy and money in this community seeking to expand justice and mercy. It's also why we have the Good Samaritans Fund for members of our church or people who are connected to our church. If you're in financially hard times, we want to come alongside you and help pay for your rent, help pay for your bills, help you as as we can. That would be our privilege to do so. Come speak to me after the service. Go by our welcome center. We would would love to to see how how we can help. But for most of us, Ecclesiastes would challenge us to stop. To stop comparing ourselves to others. Friends, you see how envy, um, when envy is at the root of something, more envy becomes the result. Like it's the root and it's the fruit. So if you're working so much because you compare yourself to others, then um, if you fail you're gonna compare yourself all the more to people who who have what you wish you had. But here's the problem. See if you succeed. If you're working and working and working because of envy, then you succeed. Then you're just gonna compare yourself to the people who are on the rung above you, because it's endless, or you're gonna feel smug and superior to the people who are on the rung below you. So envy just breeds more envy. And none of it brings any content. It's a game that doesn't have a good end. And here's the thing. Maybe just because I'm super competitive, but I think it's also wise. If you're playing a game you know you can't win, it's time to play a different game. If there's no good answer here, if A and B are terrible options, it's time to figure out C. Comparison, it's, it's that game with no good end. It is the thief of joy, as has often been said. Ecclesiastes challenges us to consider Um, How would your work life, how would your family life be different if if you weren't comparing yourself to others? Okay, one more question that can help us. Wisdom as we seek to get the balance right in our our own lives, have a healthy, happy relationship with work. One, who am I comparing myself to? And two, here's the second one. Um, Ask yourself, who am I working 
for? Who am I working for? Now, this question comes, teachers, I understand, it comes in the grammatically correct form in verse 8, for whom am I toiling? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of, of pleasure? Who is it that you are working for? The flow of verses 7 and 8 are, are fascinating. Commentators point out how um, verses seven and, verse 7 pictures this kind of compulsive moneymaker and pictures him as virtually dehumanized because he is craving more and more and more and he has given himself to this process of getting more and more and more. But suddenly, the writer stops talking about that man, stops talking about that other, and interrupts the flow with this question, but for whom am I toiling? It's this he's saying, okay, Bob over here, absolute disaster. Works his whole life for stuff that's not going to make him happy. Giving all of his time um, in this pursuit of, of envy. Giving more and more and more and more. But as the writer talks about Bob, he suddenly thinks, oh, but what about me? What, what am I doing? Who, who am I toiling, toiling for? And in voicing this question for himself, he invites us to, uh, to ask it um, as well. Who, who are you working so hard for? Chew on that with me. Is it simply yourself? Um, you know what Ecclesiastes would say? If you've missed the rest of the series, you'll need to go back to understand, but this is what Ecclesiastes would say. You will die. None of your accomplishments matter. No one will even remember your name. It's all dust and ashes. Hevel working for yourself. Maybe you'd say, um, well, I'm not just working for myself. I'm working for my family. And we want, to, we want to pause there and say that's a really good thing. That, the, that, that there's something noble, there's something right about providing for your family. You should, you should do, do that. But even as we do that, let, can we be careful not to fool ourselves? Because um, we, we work to provide for them, but then we use that as an excuse to overwork to provide for them things that they don't really need. Um, guys, you know, listen, you know your children need your presence more than they need more stuff. Yes, they need a certain level of provision, <laughs> but after that, they need your presence. They need you to show up alive and awake and alert and energized, not exhausted from, from work, but, but ready to, to pour into, into their lives. And they, they need that and they crave that more than anything they could, they could ever ever get. It reminds me of the businessman who died at the age of 51. His obituary said that he died of coronary thrombosis, but those who knew him knew better. Often at the office six days a week, often there till nine or ten at night, his family and friends knew that he had, he had worked himself to death. But the killer line came from the dead man's wife. At the funeral, she was asked, or our friends, sorry, said to her, um, I, I know how much you'll miss him. The wife turned and replied, miss him? I already have. I already have. No wonder verse 8 concludes, this is vanity and an unhappy business, working for ourselves, working for our families. Who should we be working for? Of course, you know, predictable church preacher moment. The right answer, of course, is that we should be working for God. But can we hang, hang with me for a second? 
to see how that's really good news. <laughs> to see how that's really, really good news. Because we serve the Savior who, on the cross, Jesus breathes his last. And do you remember, do you remember what he says as he dies? He cries out, it is finished. The God who worked creation has also now worked redemption. That everything that needed to be done for our salvation was accomplished by him. He has, he has worked salvation for us. And now, because of that, because he has, he has loved us in this way, he is not just our savior, he is also what? Our Lord. He, he is our boss. And isn't that an interesting thought experiment? How would you work this week if Jesus was your boss? How would you work heartily as for the Lord and not for men? On, on one hand, I'm pretty sure that you and I, that we'd both work hard, that we wouldn't fold our hands, <laughs> that we wouldn't underestimate the importance of work because we'd recognize that Jesus has given us work to do, that Jesus has given our hands meaningful things to do, and so uh, we wouldn't want to try and get away and, and live, quote, real life. We'd recognize that real life happens with him when we're at work. And we'd seek to serve our, our colleagues and our clients and our customers and our, and our kids. We'd seek to do small things that in small ways make this world a better place. If Jesus is our boss, he'd given us work to do. We'd, we'd get after it. But as we'd work hard, I think we'd also know when to stop. We wouldn't overestimate the importance of work. Why? Because we wouldn't be looking to it to give us a sense of value or worth. We wouldn't be looking to it to give us a sense of identity or a sense of self because we already have those things in Jesus. You are already holy. You are already beloved. And so, yeah, you're free to do the good work that he has, has given you, but then you're also free to stop. Jesus is no slave master. He gives you a day off. So ask yourself this question. Who am I working for? Yourself, your family, God, Ecclesiastes, I think, challenges us to consider how would your life be different? How would your family life be different if you remembered who you're working for? Can I encourage you just really practically, friends, this week to, to take some downtime and ask yourselves these questions? Talk about it with your roommates. Talk about it with your, your spouse. Um, if you have no downtime to do that in, that's a sign that things aren't right. Take some, some of your Sabbath time. You know what Sabbath time is? Sabbath is when we, we stop in order to, to rest. Stop the work in order to rest. And all of us should have a, a daily Sabbath line, a, a finish line of each day, after which time we do no more work. Now, what time of day that is might change on, on your day and the kind of work that, that you do. Sometimes you might be able to stop and get home and have dinner with your family. Other times you might have some evening meetings. Either way, there should be a time that after which you do no work. And whatever time it is, it should be before you get in bed. Work emails from your bed, that's another sign that things aren't right. But not only having this daily finish line, we should all have this... Um, weekly finish line too. Remember in the Ten Commandments, we're told to, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, that six days we can labor and rest, but the seventh day is a, a Sabbath to, 
to the Lord, that Jesus is the boss who gives you a, a day off? And how, how important is that to Jesus? Do you have a day on do you have one day, 24 hours, where you don't do any work? How important is that to Jesus? It makes his top 10. Like, do not murder. Sounds important. Take a day off, Jesus says. That's in my top 10 too, because if you don't, you're killing yourself. You'll be unable to live a healthy, happy life before his face. So take some Sabbath time. Ask yourself these questions. And do you, let's do our best to be Goldilocks. Right? Don't underwork. Don't overwork. Try get it just right. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the working God, the God who worked creation and the God who worked redemption. And Lord, we give you great praise that we had nothing to do with any of that. You made us out of your own pleasure and will, and you have saved us by that same grace. And so, Lord, we are now, we are now safe, safe to live life before your face, safe to live life with you as our boss. And so, Lord, as a people redeemed by grace, would we, um, would we work hard? Um, would we be a people who, who take seriously the, the things that you have given us to do, but would we also be a people who know when to stop? Uh, stop because we're not trying to get our identity from it. Stop because we're not always trying to accumulate endless stuff. But can stop and, and rest and enjoy um, a fuller life. Lord, I pray we would not fold our hands. I pray we would not fill both hands. Would we fill one to your glory, we pray. Amen.